Welcome to Reimagine Mobility Podcast Series. I'm here with Tim. Tim, you have a tremendous experience in this industry from lots of different angles and then lots of different technologies and companies. And right now you're doing a lot of different consulting work. So maybe explain to our viewers and listeners, where have you been? What are you doing currently? And then let's jump in and together reimagine mobility. Oh, well, thank you for the kind words and thank you for having me and, and TABL. Uh, it's a great, uh, great to just have these discussions and and uh, dialogues because, you know, this is the fun part of these jobs. But uh, but yeah, kind of an interesting history, interesting past. I long, long time ago when manufacturing was in vogue, I actually started my career in Ford Electronics back when they actually had proper electronics doing manufacturing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that led into the spin out called Visteon that many are going to be familiar with that had a, a variety of uh, divisions and roles. And uh, make a long story short there, I had a a variety of increasing levels of, uh, of jobs, but ultimately became the R&D director across all those different pieces of portfolio from electronics and interiors and exterior lighting and chassis and, and on and on and glass we had. So climate control, thermal management, which has really rose to the occasion in the world of uh, battery electric vehicles and thermal management around that. So it's uh, but at the end of the day, that Visteon portfolio just became electronics and software, which is kind of where I started anyways. And then I kind of made the pivot uh, to the business and marketing side, really growing into, uh, you know, ultimately chief marketing and communications officer. So everything from product marketing to benefit emails to investor relations and doing the quarterly earnings calls as a public company. So very proud in the time I was there, we had, I think, 11 or 12 straight quarters, of, you know, margin improvement, revenue growth. And, you know, those are, those are big, big, big things to accomplish in a public company at that size. And then ultimately left there, started my own thing um, and started a job with Ford at the time, which uh, that consulting opportunity actually led to a full-time position, which I wasn't really interested in taking, but the mission was so cool. It was a little startup inside of Ford called T-Medicine, which really incubated the Mustang Mach-E, the F-150 Lightning, and the E-Transit, which you see on the road today that are all award-winning vehicles and really helping set the tone for them as a company. And then then ultimately back to the consulting side. So yeah, so engineering, manufacturing, marketing, investor relations. So, uh, you know, lots of different traits, probably master of none, but just keeps things exciting. So let, let's jump into one area that I think that you touched upon, and you certainly had a lots of years of experience in there, software and electronics, right? If you if you listen to the news, if you listen to the industry, if you listen to experts, if you listen to engineers, not every engineer, but that's what I'm getting to, everything is about software, the software-defined vehicle, over-the-air upgrades, uh, customizing your interior to touch, to feel, the lighting, whatever it is, it's all software, 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 software. And... Personally, not a software guy, but a hardware electronics guy, at least by degree. I'm always like, this is all great, but why? where's the hardware that still allows this to do? I understand the capability of software has grown so much, right? But I mean, we can't minimize how far chips have come. Kind of, we're talking about Qualcomm's chips. We're talking about NVIDIA, Mobileye, all those companies that are you know, making these chips ever so more powerful and ever so smaller, right? 
But from your perspective, what is this balance? Is it is it in, in a total imbalance right now of how the industry talks about software and sort of, let's say, almost ignores the hardware? Is it the proper balance? Is it about to come up again and be truly on equal footing? Or is it actually, are we just about ready to realize we got the software figured out, but our compute platforms are nowhere near there where they need to be, and suddenly that will come up again? Give me your perspective. You know, I think, I think every, every customer, every OEM, you know, usually obviously starts with that miss. What do they want for their vehicle platform? Everything's a hot mess, quite honestly. Uh, you know, whether it's the software, the hardware, the thing that most people often forget about, how am I going to do over-the-air updates down the road? And, and if you really take a step back and you, and you think, okay, is it a new vehicle? Is it a refreshed vehicle? What electrical architecture am I dealing with? Am I reusing old modules? Is it new modules that are all over-the-air updatable? And then, you know, that, that consolidation or non-consolidation of those hardware platforms, which, you know, in the industry, many of it call it domain consolidation into these high-performance compute platforms. When that can happen, that obviously helps reduce complexity, increases speed, reduce, increases reliability as well, by the way. But when you can do that, and then you can get these software stacks more containable versus trying to deal with it across 50, 80, 100 ECUs in the vehicle, that then reduces that burden on the software teams to a certain extent. Maybe that burden's condensed or integrated in other ways. But how do you then take that that complexity reduction and then apply it down that eco or down that life cycle? So back to what I mentioned about the over-the-air updates, you know, many OEMs struggle today doing that because they're they're living in a bifurcated world. They, they have a portfolio of vehicles that still have 100 ECUs that they're trying to go to every supplier in the world that provides those products to get that software update, integrate that into their into their stack to be able to push it out on an OTA um, versus that complexity just gets much simpler in the future when you can get to these generation two, generation three electric vehicle architectures. So, and then the, the, the hidden mess underneath that is, you know, your, your chip manufacturers, whether, you know, the, their emphasis and, and the N, and NXPs and videos of the world bringing to the table, what's affordable for that platform. You can get some really screaming SOCs, but it, it doesn't mean you can afford it for a million vehicles going across the, the road. Otherwise, every, every one of our laptops would all have high-end graphics processors in it, and there'd never be a question about it. But, you know, Obviously, automotive is very price sensitive, but my, my biggest push and takeaway and learnings over the last probably five to 10 years is reduce the hardware complexity, reduce the software complexity, then you can reduce the service complexity on the back end, whether it's updating things, fixing glitches, adding new features. It, you know, I think all of us, especially any of us that are engineers by trade, we love to create, we love to add new, but we also have to constantly you know, reduce and make better, reduce and make better, reduce and make better. I think that's yeah. a good point. You're going, you already went somewhere where I want to go next. I heard uh, the CEO of Ford Farley, Mr. Farley, talk about, I think it was on a podcast too or, or somewhere, I think I saw it uh, at least online, how he feels this company is struggling getting this over the updates, uh, over the air update thing going how he struggles of making all those different software components and control modules that you, could you alluded to, to really come together and from a systems perspective, really work seamless, right? Like I like to say, so an integration challenge. 
And he said, and the reason that is, is as opposed to some others that he mentioned that do the majority of their software development all in-house to the complete vehicle, he still, or Ford is still going the traditional route of whatever, a Visteon, an ADL, whatever it might be, right? You and I both have worked with, with on the supply base for the majority of our careers. I think I don't need to say you and I both see the advantage of why they should come to a, a supplier. But now that you're more in the consulting space and kind of work for an OEM too, so you've seen both sides. And as you mentioned, it, it's a mess everywhere. And that's just the bottom line is because the vehicle's getting more and more complex by the minute. How do you see that statement that he made? Do you really see that as long as you do everything in-house, it's going to be much better, it's going to be much faster because you don't have this integration mess? Or mm, not really because you're missing out the advantages you're getting going to the suppliers and the domain knowledge and core, core capabilities that they have? Share a little bit of your perspective on that. Yeah, I'll give maybe two answers. I, um, you know, One is... The infamous, you know, somebody's in baseball terms, somebody's out in the outfield getting ready to catch the ball going, I got it, I got it, I got it. And all of a sudden, you know, the little kid looks over his head, he's like, I don't got it. So I think there's a little bit of that. They want to all strive to have that control, you know, have have that expertise in-house to do everything. Yeah. And everybody wants that. You know, they want to be like, you know, some of the startups that are, that are in vogue. But they're a long ways from getting there. So the second part to that answer is what phase are they in? Um, obviously, the, the stuff that's rolling off the, the assembly lines today with multiple, you know, 50, 60, 80 ECUs mostly on these vehicles, you know, they're, they're doing what they can. They're managing it with their supply base. And then the second phase of that part two is, you know, there is what there is today. But then as they transition, how do the, those relationships change with the supply base? Uh-huh. You know, we used to, when I was at Vistion, we'd get a purchase order, you know, build this product be inclusive the hardware the software you know all the service work everything it was a total package now it's all right i might just buy the, the software stack for you from a, for a digital cluster and i'm going to bid out the manufacturing separately so you may you can you can quote on the manufacturing but you know flax or somebody else or somebody in china might also have to quote on it as well so i think there's a a separation of obviously the hardware and the software side uh, moving forward so that's a piece and and part of that isn't just separating where they can do it in-house or out-of-house, but it's a mindset to start to do that separation. So then there's flexibility. Do I want to buy that software stack from tier 1A, B, or C, or do I want to do it myself? And with the ultimate ambition to do a lot of this themselves, but as we all know, you know, in the world of software, whether you're you're running in-vehicle embedded technology, whether you're running a dyno or whatever, ill or whatever, there's always little proprietary pieces in there that are intellectual property that, that every supplier owns. Otherwise they wouldn't be in business. So they have to be protected, you know? So it's, it's a fine balance. I think that desire is there, but even if you skate to the ambitions of most OEMs, which is do everything in house, I think there's still going to be, uh, you know, the little kid on the baseball field thinking they have, they're going to catch that fly ball. And they're not going to be able to catch all the fly balls. And when that happens, how is the supply base there in a very friendly, non-confrontational way there to say, okay, how many people you need? I can, you know, can we be there to help you fix the, fix the mess, make sure you meet your startup production dates. And, and that's the challenge because many of us know the end outcome because you've been in the industry long enough. 
but you have to let it kind of take its natural progression until that failure mode, so to speak, takes place. And then you just have to be there to, to help fix it. That's, you know, I love being in this consulting world because I can't, I can be very frank on not being on the OEM side and not being on the supply side. So it's, you know, being in the middle of all this and having lived on both sides, that's yeah. a lot of what I see. We're, you know, we're sure. definitely on this up and, up and downhill slide. And it'll change. Give it 15, 20 years, it'll all change. So sure. Let's see, we, 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 we're doing too much inside. Let's send it back out. I've seen that cycle twice. Around. I've seen that myself. And then, and I think if you go back, right, if you go back, whatever, how many years when, when AutoZar first was brought up, which was sort of this, hey, let's all get together and figure out how can we separate the hardware from the software that we can take anybody's software and plug it in and run on the on the base software, but we're not dependent on, you know, this Dion to give me everything, but I can create more competition, more flexibility. Hey, I think that's still the case today. We're still pushing this, but I'm still challenging the viewpoint at times and how important that is and how much money we're really spending on developing Autozar compliant uh, ecosystems that I didn't see, frankly, not as much used as I would have thought it would be used by now because, again, so many OEMs, maybe less in this country, but certainly in Europe, I would say, continue to push this, right? Yeah, I thought, I mean, that's got to be a 10-year period or so, and maybe it's longer the time. <laughs> you lose track of time, but I really thought that would have progressed more than it has. I don't know if it's just pushed back by, you know, engineering and engineering manager levels or complexity. I, it's not really complexity because it is what it is, but it's, yeah. it's, it's the willingness to implement and stick to it. And I've seen it on the uh, in-vehicle infotainment side as well, if you're familiar with the Geneva Consortium, which is now called Covisa. And, uh, you know, They've been pushing for years to try to standardize bits and chunks of, of the software stack in that domain. Uh, and, you know, mixed, you know, kind of mixed reviews of what people will accept and not accept because many end customers don't want to do it all themselves. Right. And, and and I I think they are now getting more momentum over the last two to five years, but only because the tech companies have come in that AOF, you know, Google, you know, Android and Apple. Um, you know, even Amazon's dipping their toe into different things, especially with the, the voice technology. But it's it's only been since that. And no, those are all standard products, by the way, even though we're applying them to auto. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're recreating it every time to bring it into auto. And, you know, your apps, you know, you hear about some of the the electric vehicles that you could launch YouTube on it when you're in a, your charging station or doing that. But, you know, that app in there is it's very little difference than what you have on your on your mobile device or your phone or anywhere else on your on your desktop it's yeah and that's a form of standardization versus a you know old school automotive manufacturer tier one just trying to develop everything bespoke so those days they're they're slow some things are going away but boy it's been a lot slower than i thought you know you got to a lot more commonality yeah so you you talked about the beginning a little bit on how you let's call you the father of automotive technology at CES, okay, of what you've done. You've seen a lot, and you guys certainly at Vistian, I remember being at some of those tents at CES specifically and, and seeing your stuff. I, I always remember the cool clusters and the advanced technologies you had there, uh, some of the center stacks you guys did. Let's talk about a little bit interior, right? So stuff that a consumer sees and uses and touches, because right now we sort of talked about the base, the foundation, 
of, again, the software and the hardware of a vehicle, of the technology. What have you seen over the last three years that, that somewhat surprises you? And an example would be, to me, how fast in China, for example, they have really focused on the, let's call it infotainment or, or displays in the vehicle, right? It used to be small, a cluster yeah. in, in, in the center stack. Now it's sort of almost everywhere, touch screens and all sorts of functions. To me, surprising how fast, uh, at the same time exciting, how fast China has come, for example, or at least the China OEMs. You haven't been in this space for, again, 20 plus years. What has surprised you the most about the consumer-facing stuff inside the vehicle? Yeah, the, you know, I think there's a few things. One, the, you know, when you sit in these vehicles, the fidelity of the graphics and the crispness. I mean, you know, hands off to the, Hats off to the design teams that have done this. And, and many of those design teams, you know, the leaders of those design organizations are in this, well, they've lived the transition. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago, they were sculpting clay and putting mechanical parts into an instrument panel. And they've all had to pivot their game from very physical to digital. So they've been, you know, many of them have been hired and grown up in the digital world. But for the most part, a lot of them grew up in the physical clay modeling world. So to, to get to the level that we're at, but I think, you know, I, the thing that, that has had to happen is it's no longer design studio, electronics people, software people. It all has to be dovetailed together. That You really have to have this, you know, these these agile teams that really work to rapidly improve. And, and, and it's not just in vehicle digital technology. It's the same around anywhere area of software to make these rapid improvements. But when you're looking at these vehicles, like you mentioned, that are now sometimes, you know, Pillar to pillar displays, sometimes 48, 52 inches wide. That's a lot of real estate to put digital content on. And, you know, some of those, some of that content is obviously for driving. Some of it's in stationary mode, especially in these battery electric vehicles. But getting that right, getting it connected and tied to what consumers expect in their kind of traditional consumer electronics world. It's tough. That's a tough business. And, you know, we have a hard enough time, or at least I have a hard enough time getting my electronics and connectivity to work at home, let alone in the car. So, you know, it's just so much work to get all these things literally firing together. And it's just a ginormous systems engineering challenge. I mentioned that word earlier, but it's just there's so many things that have to happen for the consumer and, and everybody focuses on the car, but it's not just the car. We have to design from day one kind of the trifecta of the car, the cloud, and the mobile device. Uh, Some people today still, you hit a start button on your mobile app, and you're still waiting 10, 15 seconds for your car to start. By the time you walk to it, you just start it yourself. So th- these are the things that you have to solve from day one. You have to have all three of those ecosystems singing in harmony together and you know, to get these features and functions working appropriately and to make customers happy, but mm-hmm. you know, the digital fidelity, the amount of displays, the amount of content, and we have to keep getting. You know, I get passionate about this, but it's like we all buy these laptops, and you go to Dell and you click a hundred thousand features that you want because oh, I got to have all this stuff, and then after three months, you use like twenty percent of it. And then the same is in the car. I, yeah, yeah. I have a friend that's uh, retired military, works for one of the airlines, and, and he bought a large SUV, and he's like, Tim. He goes, it's been six months and I'm still finding new stuff on this. You know, I, cause I'll never learn all of it. And yeah, that's the way it is, which is in some ways good. Yeah. 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 
And I think you're making a good point, right? Systems engineering has become over the last, I would say, three to five years in our business, high demand, right? Because again, of the complexity, not only in in battery electric vehicle or, or consumer electronics, how we integrate it exactly as you say, seamlessly, right? Because if I click on an app today, it comes up and boom, there is. If I now use my smartphone to turn my car on and it takes 15 seconds, I'm like, well, the junk don't work, right? We have high expectations and a lot of this stuff can be addressed from the beginning, as you mentioned, with, with the proper systems engineering. So let's maybe two more questions for you, Tim, before we wrap up here. One, what is it that you're looking for when you reimagine mobility with, with all the things we've talked about today or maybe something else in the mobility space? What, what do you look forward to in the next five years seeing happening? Is it that we're all going electric, that we're going autonomous in five years, like we already said we would be by now in 2017? What is it that you're looking for? What excites you? What do you see not only reimagining it, but the reimagined piece also becoming a reality? And what excites you about uh, you know, I, I think taking, you know, we talked about all this technology and complexity, but making it it's simple for the user at the end of the day, um, you know, boiling this complex, which is really what engineering's, an engineer's job is to do, whether you're software, hardware, or what have you, is take the complex and then boil it down to something that's usable. And, and we, we talk about user experience. We talk about HMI, human machine interfaces, but really making things simple that customers can use because if we if we don't have a good experience in a product and you see that with you know this thing here all the time if it's not a good experience somebody moves on to the other product the form factor the shape the technology even is the same it's a touch screen it's usually six to seven inches and diagonal and has a camera it has this and that but if the experience isn't good they'll move on to the other so yeah. to me continuing to to reduce the complexity maintain a high level you know customer experience those to me are the you know, the, the never ending holy grail, because, you know, even though you're trying to accomplish that, you're constantly from above getting bombarded with new, new technologies, new features. All, you know, we haven't even talked about the exterior side of the vehicle, which is all the ADAS technology coming in and then all the sensification of an integration of that technology. That's a whole nother, another world to deal with. So yeah. to me, you know, the magic wand, holy grail is making all that just so good. that Everybody loves it and they don't complain. True. That's very much true. I mean, I, when I dealt with infotainment systems, I don't know, about 10 years ago, right? We've, we've looked at all these systems. We've tested a lot of them. We helped develop some of them. And I always said, I've, I've seen the ones that are jam-packed with technology, but A, very lack the basic intuitivity behind it and what to do or had a hard time working, right? Took forever to boot up. But then you had the ones that people say, yeah, it's fairly simple, but I have to say yes, but it works and it works all the time and it's intuitive. So I think that's that's your point completely. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's the same thing, right? I mean, you know, probably yeah. a third piece to that is, you know, we we talked about certain OEMs wanting to take more control. I think at the end of the day, whether no where you no matter where you are in the ecosystem, whether you're a, an OEM to a tier a tier to a tier two or three, a, a consultant upwards, service providers for some whatever you may be, we can't lose the ability to collaborate. There's a lot of companies. Oh, I collaborate. You can't just say you collaborate. You need to do collaboration because yeah. you know, we talked about the, the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons of the world. That's all about collaboration and bringing the technology into some different form factor ecosystem. And, you know, I have seen that ability be lost in the industry. 
you know, people talk about it, but when it comes to the practice of actually collaboration, which is, you're not going to always get what you want. You can't, it can't be, it's like a negotiation. It can't be a one-sided discussion. That's only one side's happy. It's not going to work. If, if both sides are happy, yeah, it's probably still not going to work. So you got to have a little bit of unhappiness on both sides, even on the collaboration side. And I think, you know, I, I fear the industry as we transition to this new world is going to lose sight that we still need to collaborate, whether yeah. it's the, you know, wherever you are in the ecosystem going up or down or even sideways, you need to be able to continue to do that, that discipline. Yeah, that's a very good point. All right, final question for you, Tim. What's the next car you're going to buy and why? Cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I, I've been very fortunate to really um, to drive a lot of EV vehicles and, and, uh, and different, diff- with different technologies. But I, I'm still a sedan person. I know that I'm a performance sedan person, and that's really what I love. And I love manual. I, I'm, a, I'm a car person at heart. You know, I, I just, I look at some of the vehicles that I'm driving today that I won't mention because they just don't give that emotional spark that I need. Uh-huh. I was just telling my wife the other day that, you know, I miss hopping in one of the old cars I had that I, not old, but it was a new old car that I loved on a Sunday night and just driving into the, you know, back rural country roads and having fun. And I, I miss that, so that's what I need to get back to. And, and I can do that with electrified vehicles, but it just... Um, I love it. It's the future. It's, it's, you know, what pays many of my bills, but um, I just don't have all the emotion. And I, you know, I've driven a plaid that's, that's up there, you know, but, uh, but it's really, you know, it's the whole experience. It's not just the speed, it's the performance, it's the, yeah. the package. So I know it's kind of a non-answer to it, but it's oh, no, uh, it's good answer. No, again, it's an honest answer. It's good because I think too many people, you know, just say, oh, it's, it's got to be an EV. Don't tell me what society wants you to, to say. Again, this is about what, what do you feel? Again, where's the emotion attached? For some people, it's, oh, it's the electric, you know, the torque and the instant power and all that. For others, it's like, no, I still like to fear the gear shifting. I like to shift myself. No, perfect answer. And, and it's changing a little bit, too. I, you know, I've got an 18-year-old that just went off to college and you know, still wants a car. Well, you know, we're constantly looking, but his, his focus is rear-wheel drive manual, lightweight. You know, he's looking at, uh, you know, GR86 Toyota vehicles, you know, small Subarus, uh, old Miata, 20-year-old Miatas. And um, when you try to find these vehicles with, you know, less than 100,000 miles, I mean, you wouldn't believe the pricing on these things. You're talking, you know, 15, 20 grand for some of these things. And it's just, it's crazy, the, the used car market for, some of these, yeah. I call them the niche vehicles that nobody cared about five years ago that have just kind of through the roof. Yeah. yeah. But, but, the, but that's what puts smiles on people's face. And I think the industry, as, as power density gets better, these are the vehicles that we need to create in the electrified world with the emotion uh-huh. that, that isn't a four-door SUV that's really quick and fast and, and heavy, by the way. But how do we have some more lightweight, agile, fun vehicles that you know, a, a young professional can afford to buy. That's, now, that's what we ultimately need to get. So anyways, that's perfect. Good, good answer. Good wrap up. Thank you so much, Tim, for your insight. And together with me here, reimagine mobility, how we see it coming. What have we seen? What's today and where we're going? Thank you so much for your time, Tim. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for listening to Reimagine Mobility Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.